Good day. This is Margaret Thatcher talking down to you. Many years ago, I remember watching a television program with a lot of homosexuals living together. Personally, I thought Rainbow should be banned. But nevertheless, rights have gone on. And today we have a marvellous opportunity, a beginner's guide to a 40-something gay man. I think that is homosexuals. Hello, my lovely listeners. Episode 21, Forever 21, if only. Hello and welcome back. Um, Hello to people. A few hellos in uh, New York City, Texas, Florida, Paris, France, Finland, Switzerland and Mexico, to name but a few of people who've been checking in in the last, in the last week. Thank you very much. Keep tuning in. Keep subscribing. Keep leaving reviews. Um, This week we do have a very uh, interesting, really fun uh, chat with um, a gentleman who I would now consider a friend from working with him, um, Mr. Steve Nallen. Um, And for British listeners and European listeners... Uh, you will know him very well, amongst other things, for being the voice of Margaret Thatcher in Spitting Image. And now, for US listeners and younger listeners, uh, Spitting Image was a British uh, satirical puppet show which ran from um, the mid-80s to, I think it was 1996. Um, there was a US version, uh, but it was uh, it was a huge show in the UK. I think HBO are even talking about uh, having a an updated version, I believe. I'll ask Steve about that. Um, So looking forward to talking to Steve. Um, I think you'll find him uh, extremely interesting. He has uh, been in the business and done everything, so uh, there's stories there. Um, And his experiences as a a gay man in the industry, so we'll we'll talk about that. So looking forward to that. Um, The show has been going uh, really well. We had some nice reviews. We had some uh, very responsive audiences. I'm really enjoying the experience uh, with these guys. So, uh, yeah, let's hope long may it continue in that vein. Um, And as I say, uh, Steve is also in the show Chinese Whispers, playing at the Greenwich Theatre this very evening and many more evenings to come. Um, I've given you all the details before. I'm not going to go over that again. But anyway... um, just to say, apparently reviews are in, um, but they're not going to show, and I'm not even going to be able to see them until there are lots and lots and lots. And I think by that it means in the hundreds of reviews. Apparently, um, I have discovered in my desperate searchings that it takes a while and it takes numbers nothing gets published until there are large numbers of reviews and by that i think by the sounds of it it does need to be hundreds so if you haven't left reviews please do 
please leave positive reviews saying lots of lovely things. Um, keep going and, and eventually your review will be seen and I will thank you personally. Um, as I say, you can leave reviews in the meantime on SoundCloud and you can message me um, about bits and pieces on SoundCloud. Uh, you can contact me on my website uh, which is mattyandkelly.com or you can even just email me. Um, my email is on my website too so uh, you can find it all there as I say SoundCloud is just even even if you're on iTunes you could just jump onto SoundCloud find it there uh, when you have a moment online um, you're sat at your PC or uh, you're on your Mac or wherever um, and go to the top right hand corner of SoundCloud and there is a little envelope and those I will see and I have seen um, a couple of through there so uh yeah but anyway go back to itunes keep reviewing let's get them up to the hundreds of reviews and uh and then we'll see what happens but anyway um i have some very exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks uh so keep tuning in um so yes a couple of things before we go on to steve because i want to allow lots of time for steve and i to chat today because uh, there's going to be a lot of really fascinating stuff that you guys will want to hear, so I'm not going to fill up your uh, pod time with just my ramblings this week. Just to say, uh, The Leftovers, which I've talked about a lot, the TV show, and if uh, you're only tuning in to this, epi- uh, this podcast, this particular episode this week, The Leftovers is one of my favourite television shows starring Justin Theroux, who is also one of my top ten men in the world apart from my uh, fiance <laughs> um but the show is incredible um and it's set after a rapture 2% of the world have disappeared in a rapture um and that's all I'll say because there's a lot of stuff in there um i thought it was going to get lots of emmy nominations it did get one for outstanding guest actress for Anne Dowd who is incredible um, in leftovers, um, I think it should have. I, I just cannot believe it wasn't nominated for best show. I think it was in in a in some shortlists, but for this final, for the final shortlist, it's not there. Um, and I think it should be for many different reasons: for directing, music, lead actors. Um, anyway, uh, I finished it now, and uh, the final episode made me sob. I say that a lot, but this one really made me sob. So, if you haven't watched Leftovers, just go and do it anyway. And this week's track, the track I'm recommending for you, is called South of the River. South of the River, as in South London, uh, is by a a guy, a die, a guy. He's not a die, because that would mean he he would be Welsh, or some other kind of stereotype. A guy called Tom Mish. Um, M-I-S-C-H um, and South of the River is the track and the best way to describe it is I've talked before about my love of Jamie Woon so it's kind of very much like his kind of music um, Tom Mish is also he's a multi, multi-instrumentalist and producer much like Jamie Woon um, and it's neo-soul hip-hop and jazz really kind of all rolled into one you can find him on iTunes and SoundCloud. He is on um, uh, Twitter as at Tom Mish. And 
at Tom Mish. The uh, M in Mish has a capital M in the middle of it, um, no spaces. So you can find him and have a look at him there. But just go and check out this particular track. I love it. It's very summery. I keep talking about summery tracks. Um, oh, good. Here I go mentioning the weather. It's a little bit grey and muggy and I'm waiting for thunder at the moment. Anyway, done. Um, but yes, so those are all my recommendations. And I think we're going to go straight in now because it's time to meet the wonderful, the talented Mr. Steve Nallen. Hello, Hello. Steve Nallen. Actor, writer, voiceover, impressionist and teacher and dramaturge we've just discovered. <laughs> yes. A man of many talents. And out of work in most of them, most of the time. <laughs> That's the um, so we're going to jump straight in, Steve, with, uh, well, right at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, uh, where you were born and when. Uh, 19... 1960. Yeah. Um, uh, Leeds, Yorkshire, so I was brought up... Um, in Leeds until I was 18 when I went to university, then I was in Birmingham, and I stayed in Birmingham for about 20 years, and now I live in North London. Okay, you're based in Barnet, Barnet aren't you? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, for, for you, so Leeds, school-wise, um, were you a, did you like school, did you enjoy school? Um, I went to a Catholic primary school in a very tough working class background area okay. and we did 11 plus papers for an entire year before we did our 11 plus uh-huh. so when I did my 11 plus I'd already done the paper that we had been that we were tested on sure so the point being this was a background that was very aspirational for the kids that went to that school. They were very, very keen for those primary school kids to go to grammar schools that still existed in that school. That wasn't the case for all the other schools in the area, but it was very, very specific to our school. Was it all boys? No, it was mixed. I then did go to an all boys school as a a grammar school. Okay. Um, And that was um, a very good grammar school in Leeds called St. Michael's College, which is no longer there. Right. Um, which I enjoyed tremendously. Education suited me down to the ground. Um, and um, I, was, I became studious at the age of about 14, 15, when I got a room to myself for my first time. And right. then started reading and books and studying. And I did well at A-levels and all that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. And I didn't drink or I wasn't terribly social. Therefore, a lot of my energy went into... Um, into uh, well not academia but into getting as good a results at at A level as I could so that was from about the age of 14 that you were sort of head down yeah um, uh, and at that stage two questions here (laughs) Um, did you have any desire at 14 to be uh, the performance side of life was that in you at that stage I think that performance side of me has never not been there okay so at the age of four and five, I had um, a scarf, a very long scarf, uh-huh. that I would go behind the settee and the long scarf would become a shawl, it would become a turban, it would become an outfit, and every outfit would then be a new character, and then I would create stories with all these characters, and this was going on behind the sofa. Now, many people... Uh, do that up to a certain age 
and I sort of never stopped. Mm. So that kept going on, um, and 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 I didn't know that you could perform professionally. I we could we didn't have anybody in the family money. that was like that. But but it was just there. So I've never known a time when I didn't want to be a performer of some. It's always been there. It's always been. Um, did you? Were you a good? Uh, were you a good mimic when you were a kid? I mean, were you able to mimic? Because people always say, oh, in, in, I, you always hear the, uh, the, the, the theory that if you're um, an impressionist or an impersonator, that you have this ability to impersonate your friends and your teachers and, and all that stuff. But Yeah, but we, I was lucky because um, Mike Yard was on television and he was a big mm, star. I remember. And he was um, you know, one of the biggest entertainers in the country and I used to watch him, usually admired him. Mm. Uh, and later worked with him, oddly enough, as well, but uh, that's mm. another matter. Mm -hmm. But um, I could do most of the impersonations that he could do, not all of them, I could do most of them. Um, and I, I've told this story before, but there was a character he used to do called Brian Clough, who was a football manager. Oh, yeah. And a guy came to school one day and he, he, and he said... I can't do a bad cloth because what you do is you just hold your nose. And I said to him, I can do Ryan cloth without holding my nose. <laughs> I said, how did you do that? I said, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I just did it instinctively or I was able to do it. I don't know how it happened. It's just It's there. just there. It's just there. Um, it, I think the technicality is that uh, I've had the cameras down my throat and all that sort of stuff. And I have taken advice, and, and the advice I've had is that I micromanage my throat. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means I just very, very slightly change the shape of it. Not only the shape of my uh, throat, but the mouth, where the tongue is, what the nasal passages are doing. And it's almost as if there is a pattern that comes from my brain into ears, nose and throat, mm -hmm. changes it so slightly that it, 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 it can change the uh, change into somebody else. And it's been happening for, for so long that it's now, it doesn't, it's there, it's kind of ingrained, it's, it's, it's well, it, it muscle is, memory? Or? It's muscle memory, but I think uh, with impressions now I find them more difficult to do because I don't have, I don't particularly want to do any impressions, yeah, yeah. which is slightly different. Um, but I've always said anyway that that is half the battle is, is the tone where your palate is and, and so on. You can teach people that. Mm. But the key thing is attitude, to create an attitude. And that's where the acting side comes in. Mm. Because that's essentially what actors are doing. They're creating attitude and, and wants and needs. And, um, and many, many people can do an impersonation. They, they, they can make it sound like somebody. But then get them to do a script... Um, in a sketch, that's when they fall apart. Mm -hmm. You see that on Spitting Image. You used to get very good impressionists come into Spitting Image and they could do a great voice. Start getting them to do a script. In a scenario. And a scenario, and they just couldn't manage right. it. They couldn't make that, that transfer. That's, that's very interesting that that actually doesn't go with it because you think if you can do it, then you can take it into a story, but clearly not. Well, I always just think that I knew that I'd got an impression as good as it can be if I picked up any book and read it in that character's mm. voice. So if you're doing impersonation of 
I don't know, we go back to Brian Clough, mm. and you talk about Leeds United, and you talk about Don Revy, and you talk about football, and you say football often enough, um, and he, you, you think, oh, that's a key word, is football. Um, but um, then try reading a phone book, or yeah. try reading Jane Austen in that voice, and if it doesn't sound right, then you haven't got the impression. Have you tried to read Jane Austen in that voice? I do. I've, I, I, that's one of my things I do. <laughs> oh, really? oh, okay. <laughs> so you can... I get Jane Austen, or any uh, Shakespeare as well, uh-huh. and, um, and take, not for a comic value, but just to just see if it sounds to... right. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so going back to school, and uh, so from school... Uh, to university, so you you, were, you had your head down, you worked hard, and then you went to you said Birmingham? Uh, U- University of Birmingham, yeah. I'd like to call it, yes. Yeah. And, and it, I did drama there, uh, which is, again, I was incredibly lucky. It was a perfect university for me to do. I did English and drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very good set of teachers. It was very, very practical-minded. Mm. The advice that I got on my first day from our head of department, um, and I could do an impersonation, he'd been dead for many years, but I can do an impersonation of him. He <laughs> <laughs> said, when you go to the theatre, when you go to the theatre, never analyse what is going on. What is the point? But when you come home, think about it. Why didn't it work or why didn't it? So you know you get people who... Now, dear listeners, I just have to say there was a very definite face that happened there. And it was very (laughs) peculiar because the face completely changed. It was clearly something imprinted in your brain. Brilliant. Anyway, sorry. But but, but, but you know how people say, oh, I don't like academics. All they do is sit in a theatre and analyse. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, His attitude was completely different. Mm. He said, what is the point? Or going to the theatre and analysing it. You go to the theatre to enjoy it, to experience mm, whatever mm. it is. But, he said, learn how to analyse it when you come home. Mm, and mm. I thought that was a brilliant piece of advice. So I'd never, ever sat in a theatre, you know, with my hand on my chin, saying, why doesn't this work? Just let yeah, it happen. Yeah. And then think about it later. No, I think that's a very healthy way to... Yeah. Not just as an actor, I think as an audience member, generally. Um, so you enjoyed... You were three years, presumably... Yeah. Um, and at that point, this is the question I said there was two, two questions, <laughs> two prompt questions. The other prompt being, by this point, at which point did you, were you aware of, of, of being different to being a gay man? Um, gay I think boy? a little bit like performing, uh, I've never known anything else. So from the age of three or four, mm. um, I had this thing where I wasn't quite sure what my sexual identity was in... I knew there were he's and she's, but I didn't quite know what my sexual identity was. I think by the time I got to six or seven, I think that had been a phase. I, I wasn't thinking myself a girl, but, mm-hmm. but what the wonderful Indians, or the Native American Indians have this wonderful phrase, I can't remember what it is now, but it's, it's, it's two spirits. Mm-hmm. So they don't talk about bisexual or gay, they talk about two spirits. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, uh, I can understand that as an expression. Mm-hmm. So when I was three or four, um, I was very, very much um, neither male nor female in my head. That settled to male, and I wouldn't want to be anything else. Mm. Um, but I was therefore aware from a very early age 
that. Um, and also, I, I, at the age of seven or eight, I wanted a doll, not an action man. Yep. And I wanted Mary Poppins as the doll. You couldn't buy uh, Mary Poppins dolls in those days, so I had a lovely auntie who made one for me. Amazing. And, um, and she realised she wasn't stupid. She realised, mm. you know, the direction my life would take. <laughs> and how very nice of her to actually do provide a Mary Poppins for you. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so yes, I, uh, I, and in terms of sexual development, yeah. I think, I've heard other people say this, but I think there's an element of truth in it, that you, you have a sort of crisis when you're, you think, can this really be, you know, what life has dealt me? Dealt me? Mm-hmm. And once you've had that crisis, you get, just get on with it. Yeah. And I think I probably had that crisis about the age of 15 or 16. Okay. Lied in bed, lying in bed saying, this is not a phase. Um, I'm clearly attracted to men. And that's it, really. Yeah. And I've never had a problem with it since. Um, I didn't start doing anything about it until I was in my 20s, a year after right. I left university. Yeah. But I had never, I'd never had a, um, a problem with it. Um, in From sense. 60, just kind of once you... Once I'd accepted it, it to yourself, yeah, and that was it. That was it, yeah. And and I've never really worried about it mm. since. And then it goes, I think, from an acceptance to uh, I wouldn't want to be anything else. Mm-hmm. So uh, I yeah. can't remember when that happened, but uh, probably a little bit soon after because you, you know I was aware of of, of difference, but and you. You find that, I mean, listen, you find it in Mary Poppins. She's, you know, big dykey Mary and, and um, g- gay um, Dick Van Dyke playing, you know, um, his character. I mean, it's, it, I went to a lecture by a gay guy who'd come over from Australia to lecture on Mary Poppins, mm. and he was talking about it as the gay alternative family that Disney had produced with lesbian aunt and uh, Bert as the gay uncle. And these children, uh, whose parents have sort of not disowned them or anything like that, but slightly abandoned them mm-hmm. to work and, and, and causes, they get brought up by these wonderful gay... I never saw it like that personally, but he did. He, he saw it yeah. very much as a gay story. Um, See, that's, that's fascinating. In one of my first podcasts, I talked about... I, went to, I was taken to a child psychologist because I was extremely shy. And one of the first things that happened, uh, the, the, the psychologist said, would you like to, uh, is there somebody you want to be? I want you to be people you want to be. And in throughout games, and kind of quite early on, I, uh, and I do have a slight memory of it, but being, I've been told about it by parents since, that Mary Poppins was the character of choice. I went straight to a table pretended to jump off and just kind of went on this rotation from table, jump off umbrella and talk about how I was going to fly to Africa. Well, I've always been a big fan of of Disney because um, I think throughout many of their films, Dumbo um, is is a a great sense of otherness Mm. that Dumbo Mm. has. Mm -hmm. You you get it in um, Beauty and the Beast, uh, you get it in Ariel, Mm. Many Disney characters are on the outside looking in mm. in, in some sort of capacity. So I've, I've never bought into you know, how repressive Disney is. Yeah. Um, and listen, 
Mary Poppins, I read the books. I was bored stupid by the books. I, I've never read I, 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 they were, I was bored silly. Um, but listen, Mary Poppins was just camp and fun. I would not have known it. I would not have understood the word camp mm. in those days. Um, yeah. But, you know, you just see it as a, just this wonderful alternate world mm. that you were able to go to and, and um, experience. That's wonderful. D- the Dumbo thing. I've never... Nah, I need to go, re- go back and re-watch that next week. Um, so what was your... I think maybe we discussed uh, very briefly the day your first experience in a gay space, gay venue, gay pub. But <laughs> well, this, I think is, if it's the this is a great story. I think it's a great story. Yeah, I was. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but about about seventeen or eighteen, maybe. So it would been seventy seven, seventy eight. And I was a big fan of Hilda Baker, and Hilda Baker was in my act at the time, mm. and she was performing in Leeds at a club called Barbados. Um, which my grandmother took me to because I couldn't go alone because I was too young. And we worked my way to Jennifer. And sadly, it was the end of um, Hilda Baker's career and she had a pretty tough time on stage mm-hmm. and she did a very, very short act. Um, but I wasn't stupid when I walked into this place because mm-hmm. I could see it was men and all in very tight white jeans in that sort of... Saturday Night Live, uh, Saturday Night, is it Saturday, what's it called? Yeah, Saturday Night Fever. Night Fever look. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, and the particular blonde dyed hair that <laughs> went with that look. Uh-huh. And very, very young, slightly prissy. I thought, I know where I am, but I don't think my grandmother does. Anyway, we watched right. Tilda Baker, and when she'd finished, we then left, and that was the end of it. I don't know that my grandmother um, ever really understood where she had got to. My grandmother was incredibly open. We watched Naked Civil Servant together, but we oh, never, really? um, it was, there was never any comment on it. I do remember there was a documentary on um, sexuality, um, or it might have been on a, somebody who was doing a transition, I can't remember now. Okay. And um, uh, she, my auntie was slightly deaf, said to my grandmother, What's this about? And my grandmother said, it's about homosexuals. <laughs> and in the play we're doing together, there's a moment where oh, the character oh. that I'm playing, Bland, says the word homosexuals. And my grandmother had never said the word before. Uh-huh. And therefore she didn't really know how to, how to pronounce it. So that's sort of, I've stolen that moment <laughs> from her. And that's why in the play I say... You are homosexual. Because she doesn't know how to say the word. That's fabulous that you've taken from there. <laughs> and then the, and Hilda Baker, and if you don't know people, and I know some of you won't, Hilda Baker, you need to go and Google and spend some time. I'm sure YouTube has things. For yes, um, she was a, a, a great comedian at the end of the variety, big, big variety star, and, and very alternative comedy mm. in her own right. And she had, which is very comedic, one of the great voices that went very high and low, and you did it all this, and she had lots of catchphrases, and there you are, sat sitting down, sat sitting and laughing away. Because the thing about voices is that uh, the reason why we laugh at those sort of voices is the same reason we laugh when we're toddlers because of the extremities of the mm. voices we're mm-hmm. going up and going down you watch a child listening to an adult you know the adult oh, you, you, 
Yeah. And the child loves, you know, range, and the child finds it funny, and, and that's sort of it's the same thing. Yeah, same thing. Um, which actually, that so that kind of going to so you uh, you were doing Hilda Baker in an act. So you were in an act at this point. Yeah, I I had developed an act which I did on. Uh, the Northern Club Circuit, which mm. had developed out of performing in uh, talent shows from the age of about 15. Oh, so okay. I'd written this act, which I had partly done at school at parent-teachers' nights. And, and I'd begun those when I was 13 or 14. Wow. Um, and my teacher had written them for me, so by the time I got to 15 or 16, I was beginning to write them myself. And I'd I, I, I studied... Comedians, I'd, I'd written everything down, and I knew jokes, and I sort of knew how they worked, and uh, and I stole jokes. I didn't really write that much material myself, not like modern comedians, mm. but I was doing, um, uh, and actually, it, it was um, there were gay elements in it very clearly. Um, and in fact, one comedian I was working said, you know, you're a gay comic, a camp comic, not gay comic, mm-hmm. a camp comic. I said, mm-hmm. I don't think so. But I was doing John Inman, you know, at the time, and, um, uh, and I, I won't bore you with the joke, but it goes on for a very long time. But I couldn't quite remember it. But I was, I, you know, I was doing John Inman. And, and you know, looking back, I, even though I'm 15 or 16, um, I'm a 15, 16 year old kid doing John Inman and mm-hmm. Kenneth Williams and it, to, to, to many people it must have been obvious where my uh, personal preferences lie because that was the, 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 the people I was drawn to do yeah. you know. and Frankie Howard of course and Hilda Baker so you're, you're oh, I mean, you, you would have to be pretty mature to at that age, 15, 16, to, 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 under, to even understand, one thing, getting a voice, but to be able to, to kind of translate, to, 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 to give a line of theirs, or, or the comedy that comes with that, there's a lot of adult about those, especially well, the people I, you've just mentioned. I, 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 I learnt instinctively, uh, I learned the proper word for it uh, later on, mm. there's something called a periodic sentence, and a periodic sentence is where you put the most important comedic word at the end, the sentence uh-huh. and you save it to you save it to last and um, and in the play that we're doing um, I've uh, there's an example of that um, somebody said you know uh, he would give him give give a, a, he would award a medal oh yes he'd award a medal to himself but that's not how it was originally written mm-hmm. but it, it's a matter of just changing that very slightly mm-hmm. so that you put the most important word. so I was knew that instinctively um, and when I started working with, I won't mention who it was actually, but, yeah. but there was, in later life I was working with somebody who tried to explain this to me. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I learned that instinctively when I was 14 and 15, don't patronise me. So somebody told you later down the line yeah. what it was called, yeah. but you were just doing it. Yeah, I was just doing it. Yeah. Right, so again, it comes like with your voice, with, uh, with uh, the mimicry. But, but I, was, I was glued to the television watching and radio and just listening and absorbing and mm. taking to it. And my family were very worried about it. My family thought I was stupid because I would just sit and stare at the television set. Mm. What they hadn't realised was that there was a lot of processing going on there. Uh, I was processing the stories. Even at a relatively young age, I was working out that The Wizard of Oz, that, that 
represented different aspects of humanity. Mm. Um, the lion, physicality, the tin man, emotion, the um, scarecrow, um, in intellect, mm -hmm. and uh, Dorothy a spiritual learning. Mm -hmm. So, and I tried to explain this to somebody you know, at school once, and they said, no, it's just a story. I said, no, no, it's not just a story, because look, this is, this is how it yeah. works. This is how this story is working. Um, it's interesting. Whether we, whether we as homosexuals, what? Whether gay men are more attuned? Do you think? I don't. I know. think that there is that there is an out, there is an outsider that, that there's that sense of being an outsider, mm. which can be damaging. I think, and too much of it cannot be good for you. Mm. But there's that sense of. Um, the witch doctor in India is normally homosexual. Likewise, the, the medicine man in Native America. They're mm, often mm. two spirits, slightly outside, slightly outside looking in. The dis not the disadvantage, I suppose, but the thing that I did not have was belonging to a group of lads. Right. That was not part of what my childhood was like. So I was not somebody who would then... I used to play football and kick out ball, and I used to have friends. I wasn't lonely or anything like that. Yeah. But I wasn't part of a gang or a group. I just was not part of that world. I never have been. So did I think that is not... I don't know if that's to do with sexuality or it's to do with those other things. Yeah. I think there is a sense of being willing to be on the outside. Yeah. But that applies to writers. I think it applies to actors. Um, um, and a director, if you're a director, you've got to be on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. So it's a skill that not everybody has. No, absolutely. Um, school, so, so you, you, didn't, you weren't bullied or... Uh, a a little any... bit bullied, but the bully that bullied me, I became friends with, and I never knew why he bullied me, but I always, always had the impression that he was having his own problems. Right. Um, but no, I was never... Not in, not in the way that people talk about you know, yeah, being sure. bullied. I was called names, um, Puff and all the rest of it, um, because I, I technically have a high speaking voice and maybe um, there were two young girls that were friends of my sister that used to come around and say, talk like a Puff! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and you, you know, uh, I just ignored all that sort of stuff. So did you find that, that being, being funny and being entertaining that that was also the old... I mean, I know it's an old... It's a, yeah, it, there's an element of it. I mean, it, it. Yeah, I mean, it was... You, you know, there's always a group of kids who do not play football or rugby or whatever, yeah. and they go uh, what we used to call cross-country running, which is basically messing about in the woods and mm -hmm. stuff. And, yeah, then I would do funny voices and entertain them and, and you know... But PE teachers know what's going on. They're not stupid. But also, we had a great headmaster who, who believed in rugby, but he also believed in drama. And so the drama group sort of brought in all the gays, really. I mean, that's sort of what it did. So in my class, we did Charlie's Aunt when I was about in the third or fourth year, third year, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was all boys' school, so we played the, the younger boys played all the girls, yes. and the older boys in the sixth form played the men. Um, well, all the girls uh, had, uh, with the exception of one, I played on the Lucy Adele, the Doris, but... Um, there's another guy in my class um, who's gay and now a headmaster, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, mean, I was aware that the, 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 the drama group brought in the, the gay element. 
always the way. <laughs> <laughs> Which made you part of a group. Yeah. Um, in its own way, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, 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 you gravitate towards that, towards that group. I mean, I suppose as well, there seems to be a thing of... That you've got a, na- a natural sort of I, I thought yesterday, and it came out wrote it down on a piece of paper that you could, that, that I imagined you as a child being quite naturally brave, especially now knowing all the background of just saying I'm going to perform and just going into working men's. I mean, I know we've kind of jumped around a bit, but well, it was, at that I age mean, to be going into into it was what determined. I see as a working I, men's I was club. determined more than brave, right? I think. Um, and I died on my arse, I had things thrown at me, and I got booed off. Um, yeah, that must have been incredibly tough. No, because it, 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 it was part of... Uh, but, but you see, then you would perform in another club, and they would cheer you and say you were the best thing that they'd ever seen. Right. So you'd go from being told that you were the worst act, they'd have been told that, it's the worst act we've seen in this club in 40 years, was said to me. Right. Um, and my favourite expression was, I, did, uh, I was meant to do two 20 minutes, I did the first 20 minutes, and then I was summoned to the office and was paid off, which basically means you get half your fee and told to go home. So then I said to the guy in charge, I said, well, really, I, I think my second act is much better and I'd like to go on. Mm. Uh, even if you don't pay me for that second act, I'd like to go on. Mm. He said, we don't want the club cleared. <laughs> So, you know, it, 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 it's... It, and, and, and there I've just sort of determined... But I'm, whether I'm still determined is another matter. I think that you get worn out by that sort of stuff eventually. So then, so you were doing... You were working men's clubs and stand-up. Yeah, you wouldn't have called it stand-up there. Uh, you'd have called it... I was a special act. OK. Uh, a comedy impressionist special act. OK. Uh, so I, I normally did the middle act, the middle section of an evening. So you'd have a singer who'd come on and do her 20 minutes, then I'd come on as a special act, and then I'd, then you'd get the singer and the bingo. Right. The bingo and the singer. Okay. Uh, that was what it was like. The Northern clubs were great, and um, they don't really exist in the way that they used to, but um, it, was, it, was, it was a great, I wouldn't say training ground, because training, I think that... Yeah. The, 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 uh, in their own right, that they produced some very, very successful acts that, frankly, could only do the Northern clubs, but nobody else could... You know, you get certain comedians that I see all the time in London, put mm-hmm. them on in the Northern clubs, they'd die on their ass because they just don't know how to do sure. it. So, you know, you could earn a very, very good living and produce an entertaining and not necessarily rude or sexist or whatever mm-hmm. act it could be you know genuinely just just funny so i had a lot of time for that yeah sort of that. yeah and what you did do what i had to do which which i did find difficult was to reach out to the audience because mm. i would come on and i would do my act in front of the microphone i was not very good at uh, making pitching out to them mm-hmm. and people came up to me and said Look, you've got to reach to the back of the room you, and I just got, I, and that was shyness, you know, yeah. that was, you know, because that's the thing about all performers, there's that mixture of arrogance of going onto a stage and saying, look at me, because I can do this, and also the great shyness at the same time, mm. it's, it's an odd paradox, but... Do you think all, do you think all performers have that? No, not all of them, yeah. but the good ones do. The good ones do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think... <laughs> Having worked with one or two who, do, who have who have full confidence in their own ability and no shyness, and I think what they lack vulnerability. Mm, mm-hmm. um, 
Uh, yeah. They they go on. They do a great act. They're incredibly professional. They've got a great smile, and they just lack a vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I've I've met them. <laughs> it's really upsetting because um, we're very sensitive. Um, so from there to to TV to spitting image. Yeah. How did how did that kind of well, uh, after uh, joining Edinburgh, we uh, during Birmingham, we mm. all went off to Edinburgh doing our stuff, mm-hmm. and I started dressing up as Thatcher uh, in Edinburgh, and other characters as well. I did, I did Jacoby, David Jacoby, oh, okay. um, uh, doing a CND routine, which was a thing I'd rewritten from To Be or Not To Be. Um, I can't remember it now, but um, it, it was quite clever actually. Anyway, I, 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 I did this. Um, and, I, and I did Bruce Forsyth and I did a couple of the characters um, but the reviewers picked out Thatcher not surprising right. because it was unusual for a man to be doing Mrs Thatcher mm-hmm. um, and so I had a few reviews that I had uh, bizarrely a friend of mine from university, his father was a guy called George Roman who ran Theatre Cluid mm-hmm. and Theatre Cluid as luck would have it were doing a show that involved a Margaret Thatcher character and then I went to Theatre oh, Cluid oh, and did okay, a show right, called The Cloggies. I also played other characures in that, but I did play Thatcher. Mm-hmm. It was a complete disaster and very unpleasant show to work on, right. for all sorts of reasons. But then I got mentioned in reviews for that. So when Spitting Image came along, which is only a few weeks later after uh, The Cloggies, right. um, I was able to send the producer some press stuff in letters. Um, and uh, he saw me as a joke. Um, he, he couldn't quite believe this 23-year-old, 22-year-old, could could do it. And and I met John Lloyd, and he he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't want to audition for you, because I've got no audition piece. I said, ask me questions, and I'll answer them as Margaret Thatcher. Ask me questions, and I'll answer them as Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) You have a go. Um, well, they're all, they're all they're all for for an actor. So well, no, just makes all right. Good. So um, so <laughs> I've enjoyed uh, your uh, some of your other voices. Uh, Roy Hatsley, Alan Bennett are favourites. And uh, what would be your opinions? Then, actually, what are your opinions on those two particular people? I worked with Enoch Powell many many times. You may not be aware of this. Can I just point out a little bit of truth for your listeners? Please do. May shock them. Please let me finish. It's an important point. There was, in the late 60s, a backbench Labour MP called Leo Absey. Before the legalisation of homosexuality, he brought in a private member's bill wanting to legalise homosexuality. Do you know the two Conservative MPs who voted for that. Who were they? Two. One was called Enoch Powell, and the other, Margaret Thatcher. It's true. Um, It's bizarre, but they were the two Conservative MPs who voted for the legalisation of homosexuality. But they both came from that sort of... Right libertarian position. Uh-huh. She changed her mind uh-huh. as the years went by, but um, uh, it, it 
it, he, Leo Absey, I met, he, he'd written a book on Thatcher and he told me this. He was quite curious that, you know, that she, she had been um, not supportive of gay rights. I don't think she would have seen it like that, but, but that thing of not interfering, the state not interfering in people's private sexual lives mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. was part of her belief in the 60s. So did you ever have any, you never had any direct encounters? Not really. Um, we, she came to visit Limehouse Studios uh, in the Docklands, which mm. she had partly set up, the um, Enterprise Zone, and Spitting Image were based there. And she came into the room, and, and, and I almost went up to her and said hello, but there were police everywhere and all the right. rest of it. Dennis said hello to me, so, but that was the nearest I ever got to. To meeting her. Did you ever get wind of what she thought of the? I don't think she of... ever. I don't think she ever watched the image. Um, I've always tried to be uh, fair to her because she didn't have a great sense of humour. Um, mm. But very few women of her generation and background would have had mm. a, a sense of humour to understand jokes. It just wasn't her way of dealing with things. Mm. She did um, have a sense of humour and a, quite a wicked one. And John Whittingdale, who um, was culture secretary, I'm not quite sure where he is now, but he was her uh, PPI, which I think is personal private, PPS, personal private secretary. Right. And when when she was prime minister, and it was late at night, and it was during the summer, and he was a bit upset, and she said, John, what's the matter? And he said, well, prime minister, um, the thing is, you're not really interested, I know, but... um, uh, the Germans have just beaten us in the semi-finals of the World Cup. She says, well, we will just have to get over it. And he said, yes, but the Germans, can't you see, the, they've mm-hmm. beaten us at our national game. She said, yes, but we beat them twice at theirs. <laughs> Which is a good line. Uh, it still gets played. No, no. Yeah. I think I've got 12 in single somewhere, I'm not quite sure where yeah. I so, were you, so how was how was your experience working with him? Um, well, I turned up at the recording studio, and there was this young guy in a tracksuit who hadn't shaved for four days, and I thought he was the runner, and then it turned out to be Mr. George. But I know nothing about pop music, you see. Mm. I, it, it's it's my um, I think it's partly that um, you know you know when guys at school were talking about Led Zeppelin and um, Iron Maiden. I was talking about Barbara Streisand and Ethel Merman. You know, okay. that. So, and I was much more interested in that musical theatre American classical songbook with mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone and all those sort of people. So I never really got into bands. Right. Um, and um, yeah. So pop culture wasn't. So good. pop culture was never my strong point it never has been it's my loss um, because I you know so because I think it, it is one of those things that connects a generation so I did a stand up comedy thing mm. and somebody decided to play Amy Winehouse mm-hmm. when she was alive mm-hmm. and somebody decided to play Oasis and I watched the audience and every single person in that audience was singing along to Oasis and mm-hmm. Amy Winehouse and I did not know any... I'd never heard the song before. Right. I knew who they were, yeah. but I'd never heard the songs before. So I felt, oh, I'm not part of this. You know what I mean? I'm if not, you like... I'm, 
Nina Simone and the other, you should you should go back and rediscover Amy Winehouse. Go back through because she's got a lot of stuff. I think you probably get quite. I think, I think yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but I just wasn't there yeah. to to listen to. I mean, I have listened. I've listened to Adele, and I quite yeah. like her stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it it and people have bought me Mika Paris and people like that. And I've mm. listened to it a few times, and I just sort of don't quite get it. No, it's um, whereas the Ella Fitzgeralds and the Barbara Cooks and the Barbara Streisands and all those sort of not so much Liza Minnelli um, which you know I just bit 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 much um, <laughs> but where there's a degree of acting going on mm-hmm. as well as the singing I I sort of right yeah know, that's what I'm interested more in more of a storyline more of a storyline yeah um, so we're, we're going to jump all over the place. Um, so you also appeared, as I discovered today, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and you were the narrator. Yes, um, Paul Kerrison asked me to do that. That was great fun. So, so how was that for you? Yeah, I love that. Um, it, it's not the greatest show in the world, but it's one of the greatest shows to be in. Yeah. Because the audience's energy and 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 it was just. And it is fascinating because on on the sexuality side of it, um, a, a friend of mine put this well. You know, we're in show business and we dress up all the time. We tend not to, we would tend not to go to the Rocky Horror Show dressed up. Mm. Whereas actually, the rugby players, the straight guys, they just love putting on those suspenders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's something going on there, let them enjoy it. And so on and so forth. Yeah. But, but I. It's and we not, can also but, enjoy it from the sidelines. Yeah, watching. And watching. <laughs> watching. So you were, the, you, were the, you were the narrator? I was the narrator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And was that a long run? Or? No, no, that was, that was a fairly short run. Um, and um, uh, it, was, it was fun to do. Yeah. I didn't stay in digs. I remember driving every day to Leicester Haymarket. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember making a mistake um, in. Um, what the narrator has to say, and I can't remember exactly what it was, um, but it, it's it's something about Brad and, and Janet, or maybe it's about and uh, um, and I made some of my own words up, mm-hmm. um, and uh, people come to see the show again and again, and one night we had half the audience going with me with what I had mm-hmm. come up with um, and the, the more traditional response and it was about sucking cock I remember <laughs> I can't quite remember what the line was but it was, it was something quite rude um, um, anyway so no, no, no desire to play Frank in there. though no, no. no. <laughs> um, so this is kind of a big wide question I mean you've worked with and I've just got a list of people here because everybody you've worked with absolutely everyone um, they're all dead though <laughs> no no don't say no, no, they're, no, no, they're not all dead some are um, um, but like uh, just because I'm because I'm going to ask you this, who is who's been the most inspiring to you just dear audience Rick Mayle Dame Edna Rory Bremner, Mike Yarwood, and on and on and on and so forth. So, who is there been somebody that you've kind of that you've you've worked with and you've taken something you've learnt from, you know, even even later 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 in life. But even, well, there's two know. ways of looking at that, that. That is that it is weird when you 
work with somebody who used to watch at school. Mm -hmm. So that was very odd working with Mike Yarwood. Yeah. And uh, I did learn from him in a, in a sort of an odd way. Mm. Um, because he was, a, he, he, was on his, he was on the downward slope professionally. Mm. In fact, I worked on his last series at Thames. Okay. Um, and they, he eventually, essentially, he stopped after that. Uh, and it wasn't very good. Mm. Um, two things. One, he stopped working in front of a live audience, which he found that very, very difficult to cope with, the pressure of working in front of a live audience. Oh, and Thames right. basically said, we'll pre-record everything. And it was flat. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. And... I, an obvious point, you need a live audience to bring comedy alive. Mm -hmm. You can't pre-record it. So and was it fear? Well, he's, he used to say, think, yes, it was fear. Just stage um, it, it, but exhaustion stage as well. Um, and also he told me that nearly all the voices he did were older than himself. Mm -hmm. Because his rule was that a 20-year-old impersonating a 50-year-old is funny. Mm. A 50-year-old impersonating a 20-year-old is not funny. And, and that's why I've stopped doing impersonations in a way. Right. Because I, you've, I've got to move into a different area. Mm -hmm. Because um, if I went on to a stand-up show and started doing Anton Deck, it would look ridiculous. Right. It would just look ridiculous. Um, because he would be this 50 plus year old man impersonating not people who are in their 20s but people in their 30s and it would it, it, it would just look wrong um, and that's yeah that's really interesting I didn't never even and everybody was older than him yeah, yeah. Um, it's to do with it's to do with satire satire is a young man's game mm -hmm. a young woman's game mm -hmm. that been mm -hmm. sexist about it um, it's much easier for the young person to make fun of the old mm -hmm. than the old to make fun of the young. The, the, you know, old comics can make fun about young people, that's slightly yeah. different. But uh, to take the mickey, that phrase, take the mickey out of somebody, it it's doesn't come easily from somebody who's older taking the mickey out of somebody. Yeah. It just doesn't. And uh, basically, all his impersonations were dying off, mm -hmm. or they were retiring. Mm -hmm. So all the ones that he was well known for Harold Wilson, Ted Heath, Thatcher had come along, Callaghan had disappeared, um, uh, all the trade unionists that were important in the, in the 70s were no longer important in the 80s because of the Thatcher government. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't replacing them. And he couldn't do Kinnock. Right. He, he, right. Kinnock himself said he chose the wrong valley. He just right. couldn't get the right valley. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, his Prince Charles was good, but other people would nick it off him. That's what he also said to me. He said, you develop an impersonation. He was the first person to do Prince Charles. Mm. He said, they'll take it off you, you know. And he, you... Said, he said about my walk as statue, so it's a brilliant walk. Mm. He said, they'll nick it, they'll watch it, and they'll take it. Have you seen people, have you noted people who have kind of pinched things? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was on tour with, a, with an impressionist, um, and... Uh, pretty obvious who it is, and 
he kept saying, oh, do your wonderful Roy Hattersley. It's great. I love your Roy Hattersley. Do your Roy Hattersley. Mm. I thought, you want me to do my Roy Hattersley? Well, it's, it's not difficult because I'm from Yorkshire and he was from Sheffield. And he tried him bumbling. He said, oh, that's brilliant. And then I switched on the television set. And there was Rory Brandon doing uh, Roy Hattersley. Okay. Um, and I mean, I suppose it's flat. It's, flat it's, it's, it's sort of... It's what happens in cartooning that cartoonists are now doing Theresa May as a zombie. Uh-huh. Um, and mm-hmm. Theresa, and so, and Thatcher, what they did with her, somebody made her nose long. Mm-hmm. She didn't particularly have a long nose, but it sort of suited her. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people then started stealing that. And it's the same with voices. So, with, and I've done it with certain voices um, where people like Chris Barry have come up with David Coleman. Well, if somebody asked me to do David Coleman, I was actually very honest, and you'd say, look, Chris does it better than me, and they said, yes, but he's far too expensive, we want you to do it as your cheap. So I would say, well, I can do it, mm. but I'm essentially doing a version of Chris Barry's right. um, David Coleman. Uh-huh. And he used to get very shirty about it, um, and quite right in a way, but then I stopped worrying about it, and just, you know, yeah. without... In, in the present circumstances, Jan Ravens does a very, very good Theresa May. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. It's brilliant. I don't think I could do it better. And if I did it, it would sort of be a version of what she's doing, and I wouldn't want to do that. Because you've kind of seen it's there, now it's in your head. And... There is a bit, there is a way of, um, it's a bit like a magic trick. If you show a magician a magic, you never show a magician a magic trick when you've come up with it. Mm-hmm. You say, like, I've got a new version of this trick, give me £2,000 and I'll show it to you. Because mm. as soon as it's been shown to the magician, the magician knows how it's done and will steal it. Mm. So you've got to buy it up front. My point being that once I hear how somebody does a voice, I then hear how I can do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the real trick yeah. is to find your own way of getting into that find voice. Your way into the person. Get your way into that person. Is there anybody now that you kind of... Any, anyone doing um, impersonation now at the moment, in the last, well, in the last ten years that you... Think is kind of on the ball with it. Um, I think there's some good people, but I think it goes back to this thing about attitude of not of of, of the people I've seen being very good, but never quite getting the attitude mm-hmm. that you need to make it believable. Do you think that's because there's less of a sort of? I mean, like your background of being able to go out and be in in a working men's club and and, and kind of work that way round. Do you think that affects the, the people aren't they don't have the chance or don't have the, the, the playground to practice, or um, I think that there were too many impressionists, right. um, and it got diluted. So when there was one in person, when there was one impressionist being able to do it incredibly well, it's very impressive. When there's lots of impressionists doing it very well, um, or averagely so, it becomes less less impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but where do you, what do you do with? Uh, impressions. I mean, that, that, that is basic. It, it, it's, it's, it's the answer to your question, but the other way around. Mm. Supposing you get a load of impressionists who are brilliant at impressions, uh, impressions what, what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I suppose now there's not the same uh, Saturday night television is a that very doesn't different exist in the deal. Way that, it, and, yeah. Yeah. That, that variety just doesn't exist anymore. So um, somebody said, oh, you should do Theresa May. I said, well, supposing I did Theresa what would I do with mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Where would where would yeah, where, yeah. What, what, what's it? And there are some, I think there's something called the Mash Show or the Smash Show coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I think I'm too old for that. 
I don't mean that yeah. disrespectfully to myself. I no, just, no, no, I just no. Think that. Yeah. And I don't really want to do it. I mean, there are, there are some impressions I like doing, um, and one of them, oddly enough, is um, it's always the bizarre ones that I don't do on stage. Right. Like um, um, one that Peter likes, um, Barry Humphreys. Oh, yes, of course you were doing I do, three, um, <coughs> three different... Because, well, Barry Humphreys... Well, I don't know. I do, I do. <coughs> he speaks in a very slow way. It's very similar to Dame Edna, but it's as if Dame Edna has been slowed down by two-thirds... And it's a, I think it's a wonderfully considered voice. And he's considering every word that he's mm, saying. Mm. I think that's a, a great voice to do. Um, so Peter, by the way, is one of the other cast members who's in Australia, so I really appreciate it. And he likes that. You know, I, I was quite pleased. Who might be, able to, might be about to walk in the door. <laughs> um, a cast member trying to break in the door. Um, so, yes, God, this, this, I mean, really, there is that talk to you for days about so much um, but you've done a lot of one man shows so was that kind of going from was that a decision you made okay I'm going to move away from impersonations impressions to yeah I think that was part, part that, that was meant to be a, a process moving away from an impressionist act to more acting mm. um, and certainly in, in terms of the best acting show I did of the th- I did Christmas Carol um, I did Alice in Wonderland and I did The Odyssey. The best one for the acting was Christmas Carol mm-hmm. because it, it's a very, very strong narrative. Alice just goes off, meets somebody, and then she goes off and meets somebody else. Yeah. The, the, the Homer's Odyssey is, is immensely complicated storytelling, so it's much more storytelling involved in that. Whereas actually doing Christmas Carol uh, was emotionally draining every mm-hmm. night. You know. um, so I began... My Scrooge was Alice Sim from the yeah. version, the uh, well-known version. But actually, by the end of the show, I, I, I'd lost the impersonation, so I stopped doing it as an impersonation. Mm. So I began when I was doing Alice Sim. Oh, and I suppose you'll be wanting the whole day off tomorrow. Oh, oh, picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. No, <laughs> no, it is not, not worthwhile. <laughs> and then it changes towards the end and right. I've always wanted to do that but nobody else does it you know sure um, but by the end I was just doing a version of me really uh-huh. but that was so was that the kind of the how many shows you had three in a row so you did uh, yeah that took uh, about four years oh okay over the yeah did it over a four year period and you did the others Edinburgh festivals I did Edinburgh we did a tour of, of the big Odyssey we went everywhere with that Shetland's Brighton, right. Northern Ireland, everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and I enjoyed that tremendously. Birmingham was basically the rep took over the Christmas Carol. Right, I was going to say, um, and and they, and they sorted out all the they produced it and stuff. So, I, uh, but but I, I wrote it and stuff. Um, and the director was a guy called Toby Froe, who was great. And he kept referring to what I'd written as the play, which I was thrilled at. <laughs> you know what I mean? Never never referred to it as a show. So mm-hmm. in the play, mm-hmm. right, okay. But why not? Anyway? Yeah, yeah. But um, he did have problems with 
um, I just sit, sit down to, with him one day and I said, oh, you know, um, have you got a favourite thing I'm doing? He said, I don't have a television. I've never owned a television, so mm. I have no idea who you're doing. Okay. Well, I wish I didn't really matter in a way. No. Um, no. He did, I did get this bizarre phone call one day from him. And he said, Steve, uh, your Patricia Routledge is very good. I said, why are you ringing me to tell me mm. that my Patricia Routledge is very good? And it turned out he'd never seen Hyacinth Bouquet. And he'd sat down and must have watched it in somebody's house. And I think he realised, perhaps, that, uh, that my Patricia Routledge was rather good. And I'd say it myself, why not? <laughs> I mean, I love that and I love... Sheridan! <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, well, I'm going to be pestering about that one later down the line. Um, so just, yes, there's a few things, because we have to let the other actors in. Um, so you went back, just briefly, you went back to Birmingham University and you've lectured there, and how was that going back to where it all began? Well, that was great, because um, uh, it, it, I felt I'd learnt a lot and I wanted to, you know, give something back as an old thing, but that was, that you, you, you learn from your students. I learnt a lot from mm. my students. Um, and one of them, you know, sort of gave me a job, partly, or, or one of them worked in casting, one of them was a, um, worked for the company that took me to Edinburgh. Oh, okay. So uh, it was uh, quid pro quo, Clarice, <laughs> quid pro quo. Um, so, yeah, um, but that, that was good. I, I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed research. I did a course on um, comedy of manners. I did a course on Broadway musical, but I also did a course on Greek theatre, so I read all the Greek plays. Mm. And um, I'm, I, I'm, ne I'm not an academic, but what I was able to do, which the academics couldn't, couldn't do, was take complicated ideas and make them simple. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want Greek theatre explaining in a sentence, it is the citizen on the stage. You, what uh, you're doing yeah, yeah. is putting the citizen, and remember the citizen in, 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 in Greek theatre was a new idea because democracy was a new thing. Mm. And you are putting that person on the stage, and often in Greek theatre, the citizen is fighting the state. Mm -hmm. So it is how powerful the state should be to how powerful the citizen should be, and the rights that are constantly fighting each other. Yes. And that's basically um, my ten-week course on Greek theatre. Um, in, in a, in a, you know, but then that's what, oh God, I wish I'd had that sort of... <laughs> Back in the day, yeah, because well, I was very, just... I was very good at taking comedy of manners um, mm. is revealing yourself through the mask you put on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you put on the mannerisms, that itself should be revealing of your yeah, sexual yeah, yeah, nature yeah. or your what you want. And once a student realised that, they understood that. Uh, it wasn't about putting on funny voices or um, uh, saying, oh, oh, my man, though, we must go off all the and doing it like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was actually about the small talk revealing a greater truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. I know, I know. <laughs> well, you're in the right business as well as. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay, so uh, all-time, it's a really difficult one, all-time career high. I haven't had it yet. Ah, um, because I've I spent many many years as a kid seeing shows at Leeds Grand Theatre, and that is the place I've always wanted to perform. Mm. So, um, and it's a perfectly pleasant theatre in a perfectly pleasant northern town. 
uh, I've played the Palladium, I've played the Royal Albert Hall, mm. um, and um, I've been live in American tele television with 35 million people watching, but I've always wanted to play Leeds Grand and I haven't done it yet. So, somebody in the know, <laughs> if you can make that happen, for Christmas. Um, and there, so yes, yeah, so there was a, there's a bunch of extra questions we don't have time for, which we'll do another day. Um, but one final, final question. Of all the people, gay people, in the world, well, not even necessarily in your lifetime, who has been the most influential to you? Oh, um, that was my university lecturer. That was that. Uh, at university, David Hurst, who I... Uh, was a different lecture to the one I did earlier. Oh, okay. oh, no, David Hurst, you see now. Oh, my dear. Uh, he was brought up in Huddersfield, so we understood each other tremendously. <laughs> and he... Oh, he was wonderful. He was a wonderful night out. And, um, and we became friends after university mm. as well. Very sadly... Um, he went off to live in Ferrara, dear. I went off to live in Ferrara. Um, and uh, this is a very sad story. Mm. Uh, he was killed by two rent boys in oh, Ferrara. No. And uh, in, in a bizarre circumstances, I spoke to him the night he was killed on the phone. In fact, I spoke to the rent boys. They weren't really rent boys. He, they were just guys he kept, you know, 20 lira to yeah. so often. Uh, but, but they somehow killed him. We don't quite know how. Uh, or that he fell down and they left him, which is a crime in Italy. Well. Uh, but anyway, either way. So the, the Italian police um, got in touch with me and I was summoned to court because I had to s verify my witness statement. Now, my witness statement I had given to a woman in Italy and then it had been translated into Italian. But they'd lost the original statement. So the Italians had to fly over to England, Birmingham, to verify my statement. But they only had the translation into Italian, mm. which they had then retranslated into English. Now, this is turning into a two-Ronnie sketch. But um, I had to say... And then, and then he said... And then, and then David said to me, I do not know why these two young lads are giving coke to an old croc like me. And I said, oh, no, no, it's old queen like me, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to live on. He was hugely influential because um, he loved life, you know, to me. Yeah. He was always... He, he went through a terrible depression um, and, um, uh, and told me all about it. So I realised, you know, how complicated his life was. Um, so you you know you know you, you know somebody on the surface and then you really yeah. get to know you know but he was and he loved musical theatre and he was very funny and uh, um, and we liked the same things mm -hmm. um, and when he died the weekend he died I had a ticket to go which I'd bought for him to go see Le Cage Um and. Um, it was an amateur production with a lead character who was professional. Mm. But the, the, the woman who began to sing The Best of Times Is Now was, I think, the, the, the highlight of the Wolverhampton Operatic Society. And, of course, it... The best of times is now. 
and it was so awful. And like, it, you know, he would have just loved the awfulness of it. And he had a wonderful phrase, which um, which I've often nicked, which is um, which doesn't quite fit what we're doing actually, but. Um, uh, he listened to Mandy Potemkin saying, mm, mm-hmm. Is it Stephen? I do not know whether that is awfully wonderful or wonderfully awful. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Oh, fabulous. Um, oh, and then before you disappear, yes, if you, well, and also, do you have, uh, I, I, I did find you've got your website where yes. people can find you. Yes, and tweet me. And tweet you. So uh, I'm, I'm at Nalonda. No, I'm at Steve. Um, I'm better edit this. What am I? I'm <laughs> at Steve Nalon. Oh, okay, I got that. And one. I'm Nalon.com. Ah, and it's at Steve Nalon's the Twitter. That's right, Twitter. Fabulous. Um, thank you very much. Pleasure.